I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. This week on Pop It, we're talking about seasonal affective disorder and mental health with social worker Emily Swalik. Emily is a program director at UINC, a leading child welfare, behavioral health, and education agency dedicated to helping children and families to flourish and reach their potential. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah. Me too. Um, this is a quick survey of our viewers. I know you can't see us, but raise your hand if you feel depressed in the winter. I bet you all raise your hand, right? <laughs> like everyone Statistically, raises your hand. Like, mm-hmm. I think that it's the worst. <laughs> well, the time change <laughs> yes. definitely set things in motion. Right, the days become shorter, right? And it originally started as like, I didn't know this actually. I was like, what is this? Because I thought it was a, like a farming thing. Like, we're not farmers anymore. It turns out it was an energy crisis in World War I. So they wanted to make the days longer because of that for the summer so that they could conserve energy. And then it like became standard in the 60s because all different presidents have tried different things. But I had no idea. I assumed it was some kind of like weird thing from like the 1800s. President Bush, the W one, our you know <laughs> beloved war criminal and painter of dogs, um, <laughs> was the one who like in two thousand five pushed it to November. He made the summer even longer, but I guess some people get upset because that means that the mornings are darker for a longer time. I don't care if the morning is dark. <laughs> Wait, so are you anti daylight savings? No, I'm pro daylight savings all year long. I'm anti, like, changing out of daylight savings. Gotcha. So there's an argument for both. Like, people think, it's basically, like, what is more valuable to us as a society is, like, more reasonable sunrise times or having longer hours of daylight or more hours of daylight for longer periods of time. It's fascinating. I I learned a lot today. Very (laughs) I'm so glad to hear that. (laughs) But how does it affect us, Emily? What happens? So it's mostly an impact on your sleep cycle, but your sleep cycle is very much tied in to your mood. And so when we are having less hours of daylight, particularly less daylight in the morning, which I think is important because I used to be pro daylight savings year round. (laughs) I love having more daylight in the afternoon, but more and more research is showing that it's the morning daylight that is really having an impact on us because our bodies aren't getting that message to sort of get up, greet the day, um, the up and at them in the morning. And so that sort of throws off the entire rest of our day, especially when it's dark in the morning. So there is some mood benefit for that switch when we get that extra hour of daylight around sunrise, but only if you're somebody who's up at that time of day. That is very interesting. There was um, someone, I was, re- I was reading like, this whole article on Vox, and this guy essentially did, he like mapped it out, and he based it on reasonable sunrise and sunset times. And so his like reasonable sunrise time was pre-7 o'clock, like pre-7 a.m., which makes sense because that's most of the time, like if people are going to like a 9 to 5 or you know 8.30-ish job, you're going to be up around that time. And so when it's coming up later and it's like 7.30 and it's still pitch dark out, it can be like a slog. 
Now, I've heard a lot of people suggest using a light box once you go through the change, right? And people start to feel the effects of SAD, seasonal affective disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, What is a light box and what's happening to your body when you use it? So a light box is essentially something that you could have at home by your bed, ideally, that is going to mimic that natural sunlight. Of course, it's not going to be exactly natural sunlight, but it's something that having it by your bed, especially turning it on again in the morning so that you have that sort of signal to your body, okay, we're getting up, we're starting the day, it's morning, we're going to follow sort of a normal arc of a typical day, um, gets all of sort of everything in your brain that it's releasing chemically in the right place and at the right pace throughout the day. So it's one way to mimic it. Another great thing to do this time of year is throw your shades open in the morning, go outside, having some contact with daylight, especially in those AM hours, is going to give you the same message naturally. But that, again, may not be feasible depending on what your routine is and when you're getting up. So a light box is a great substitute. I was also reading that it's super common for people to make use of cognitive behavioral therapy in order to like, you know, offset this, mm-hmm. the effects of sad, but I don't understand exactly what that means. My only <laughs> concept of it is once in a while, if I'm having a bad day, Jake will just like snap and be like, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm like, is he trying to get you to do the, like the like he, eye motions? He must have watched a Ted talk or something. He's like, He'll just cut yeah, and he's like, you really gotta funny. change the rhythms or whatever. But I have, and I'm always just frustrated. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but what is cognitive behavioral therapy? I'm not sure he has a deep understanding of it. He's, so, he's not a trained no. therapist. <laughs> I will say, I am also not a trained cognitive behavioral therapist, but. The basic concept of cognitive behavioral therapy, which people also call CBT for short, is sort of exactly what it says. Cognitive, so cognition is how you're thinking, and then behavioral, so your behaviors and how you're acting. And CBT really focuses on this triangle concept of our feelings, our thoughts, and our behaviors. And the idea that if you were to place those three things around a triangle, and each side has arrows going both ways, that all three of those things are impacting each other in a multitude of ways. Um, what is a good, simple example of this? Okay, so last week I was at a professional meeting um, and someone who I know professionally, not very well socially, came up to me with her arm out. I assumed she was going in for a hug. We've never hugged before. <laughs> We're not on hugging terms. It very quickly became apparent that she was not going in for a hug, but it was too late. I had gone for the hug. It happened. She was actually putting her eye to guide me towards some people she wanted to introduce me to. So CBT triangle. I felt embarrassed. I thought it was totally awkward and uncomfortable. Um, again, thought that. I thought I had done something wrong. I thought she thought I was weird. And then if we follow that through to behavior, I'm probably going to be weird the next time I see her thinking, does she remember that? Does she think I'm weird now? So all of those pieces are interacting. And if you are working with a therapist who practices CBT, they're trying to find a way to interrupt that triangle to get you to snap out of that. Like to cope. Yes. Maybe he Mm -hmm. thought it was a literal snap. My husband is very literal. (laughs) He is. That could be it. Yeah. Yeah. So someone might try to unpack with me 
why did I think that was an embarrassing thing to do? Or because if I didn't think it was an awkward thing to do, I wouldn't feel embarrassed is the argument CBT would make that my thoughts are impacting my feelings. And then because I feel that way, I might act differently toward that person next time. She might react to how I'm acting and then it might reinforce the way I'm thinking. So we sort of look for those moment of interruptions. Like what if even though I'm feeling that way, I still try to act like my usual self next time maybe she'll respond in the usual way and it will sort of disrupt that thought for me. So we sort of try to help people find those moments that we can break that triangle cycle. I have had that. I've used that a lot because I have social anxiety, like like actual diagnosed social anxiety. And that was like that situation is exactly what I used to talk about where I would say, yeah, I felt like such an idiot. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And it's just like in the years, like years since I've started going to therapy, my way, just like the way that my brain works now and the way that I like cope with things is so different. I just feel wiser (laughs) is a big part of it, but it it is, it's, it's looking at my, it's looking at it. I externalize it. Right. And I can look at myself and be like, wait a minute, I'm acting like irrational. It's silly that I think that I'm going to do this next time and it's going to be fine. Yeah. I get on like loops sometimes mm-hmm. if I said something and then like the conversation may have very well moved on mm-hmm. and I'm still back in that moment. And sometimes I even catch myself like making the facial expressions like it's happening again. And I'm like, Oh my God, stop being such a weirdo. Yeah. Goodbye. Mike. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, Mike. Thank you to our friend unity Mike for taking <laughs> pictures. He's the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my, I guess the number one thing that I can do to really snap out of it is often exercise. Um, it just, it makes me feel so much better. And I was reading the New York times. It was just a couple of days ago. There was a study that said three hours of exercise a week may lower your depression risk. And I was like, Oh my God, it's so true. It's so important to my mental health. If I go a week without going for a run or doing any sort of exercise, I just, I can feel my mood get altered, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. And when you think about it, half hour a day is what gets you to three hours a week. That, depending on your schedule and what your lifestyle is like, is not that much time to be putting in, whether it's daily or it's finding a couple of days a week where you can build it in. And those endorphins that get released when you exercise really do make a difference, especially if you're someone who's able to make it a regular habit and then have that be sort of a consistent release for yourself and something that your body can count on. Does in that... Also, I'm assuming affects our ability to, or or like our sleep schedule, right? Like our ability to go to sleep, not just go to bed, like go to sleep at a reasonable time. Absolutely. So regular exercise, you're getting yourself sort of a little bit more tired and ready for bed. On the flip side of that, a lot of research has shown that exercise too close to bed sort of gets your body up and going and ready to move. Exactly. So depending on what your nighttime routine is, exercise, I don't know, within an hour, hour and a half, two hours of bed may not be the best choice, but building it in as a daily routine, whether you're a morning exerciser and it helps you sort of get up and get going and get moving, or an afternoon evening exerciser who it helps you settle down and sort of get tired for going to bed, there's benefits on either end depending on how it's best for you to fit it in. What if you're someone that truly hates exercise? Do you have any tricks or like ways to get maybe clients that don't love to exercise to move? So are you subtweeting me? No. <laughs> Molly worked at a gym for so long and I actually hated did, to exercise. No, I actually did use it for like, actually all last winter I went to yoga every week. 
Mm-hmm. And then they took that one class that I could go to away, and it was like really awful. But I remember that was a big shift for you. Yeah, I loved it. You hadn't done it, and you had been yeah. working at the gym for a long time, yeah. and you were like, I don't particularly I like every to. Week. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. But it was literally like because of my schedule, it was the one. Classes work better for me because, like, I won't hold myself accountable otherwise. So it's, like, a discipline issue. And that worked really well because it was, like, the one night I could make it. And it was at, like, 7. And now I'm, like, floundering. <laughs> Sarah and I ran a 5K two weeks ago. And we ran by Armsy Abbey, where I work, where you used to work. And our friend Krista was in the door. And she turned to another um, friend of mine who works there and went, why is Molly running this 5k? She hates exercise. (laughs) And I thought that was very funny. (laughs) And my answer was I power walked it. So are there any tricks though? (laughs) Anything that you can, can use to get your clients moving? So I do think it pretty much depends on the person. And the important piece, just like you were just saying, Molly, is like, what is it that's going to get you going? Whether it's that accountability piece of having a class with other people who are counting on you to show up every day, or is it finding something that appeals to you? There's so many different ways to fit movement in. It doesn't have to be cardio. I know Sarah and I are big fans of running. Not everyone is, and I recognize that. It might be yoga. It might be just getting out for a walk. And it can also be breaking it down into something smaller. So not thinking about those three hours a week, but what if it's just five or 10 minutes today Um, and finding something that you can fit in and then maybe build upon. A lot of research has shown that it takes three weeks to make a habit. So also being able to make a plan to have it be consistent that often after you do something for about three weeks, your body's starting to crave it, it's become part of your routine, and from there on, it might feel a lot easier to do it, even though for the first couple of days or the first week or so, it really feels like, oh, why am I getting up in the morning earlier and making time to do this, or driving straight to the gym from work? Um, Getting past that hurdle, I think, is the first step. Three weeks to make a habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds right. We tell students, you need to use the word 12 times before you learn it or whatever. Like, date the word 12 times before you marry it. Uh That's maybe not a good thing I've been teaching my kids, that you go on 12 (laughs) dates, then you get married. And then then (laughs) after 12 dates, you will be married. (laughs) Be true. (laughs) No, but it's funny. I never thought of it in such technical terms that, like, you know, even for me just hearing that, if I get past three weeks, it will become a habit. I'll manifest it and it will happen. Mm-hmm. That's what I did with my night cream. <laughs> now I put on my night cream every night. Took me a couple weeks. But it's funny. I actually was talking to my therapist about it. And I said, because I'm the type of person that when I'm ready to go to bed, I just want to get in bed. I'm so lazy. Like, I don't want to wash my face and put my cream. But I thought to myself, I really wanted to do it. And I remember, like, the second night I said, I said, oh. But then I was like, well, wait it's not going to happen if I don't do it. Like it won't, my night cream won't get put on my face if I don't put it on my face every night, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you're in a skincare, (laughs) three weeks is all it takes. That's all it takes. (laughs) And that also starts to send a predictable message to your brain that this is how we get ready for bed. So a bedtime routine, whether it's putting on a night cream or writing in a journal or reading a little bit of a book is also a great way to sort of reset your sleep schedule is having something you do that tells your brain, this is what we do at bedtime. It's time to go to sleep. Yeah. And it's funny now, especially with something like that. And I think you could apply this to like 
anything with a scent, right? But like I, it has a specific, like that moisturizer has a specific scent to it that now I associate with like, oh, like it's calming, you know? I don't think it's made for that. It's not like vanilla or whatever, lavender, what are the ones? But <laughs> I like, I feel like I get in bed and I'm like, mm. I feel very soothed by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you mentioned yoga. Have you used meditation with your clients at all? Do you practice mindfulness? I have used meditation. I think because a lot of my work is with kids, I find that the time to meditate can be a little bit challenging to maintain. I've had some groups where a guided meditation at the end of the group works well. And again, I think there's an accountability factor of we're all going to do it together and we're going to sort of hold this space together um, to keep it sort of quiet and focused. But I think mindfulness works really well in my experience and can look like a lot of different things. Um, Like for me, I think the most mindful thing that I do in on a sort of regular basis is painting my nails and taking some time for myself where I truly just focus on painting my nails. Um, but I think the underlying thing is trying to be in a place where you're taking your mind into the present moment, focusing on just sort of the one thing you're doing, whether that is sitting and meditating and focusing on the breath or focusing on zeroing in on all the objects in the room that are purple or doing some mindful eating. It can be a lot of different ways that you make that moment for yourself, but I have seen it be really successful for people, especially as a strategy that they sort of have in their toolbox of when I'm feeling this way or starting to have that negative thought, this is the thing that I do to pull me back to the here and now. Yeah. That sounds like it's probably where the like coloring phenomenon came from, right? I'm a big supporter of the coloring book phenomenon. (laughs) I have so many color. I have like regular, like, uh, what are they? Mandalas. But then I have like a little Prince coloring book and like a Bob's Burgers coloring book. (laughs) And now there's something that appeals to everyone. I remember, I don't know how many years ago now having friends send me articles that were like, you're single-handedly supporting the adult coloring book craze, but I don't feel that way anymore. It has finally caught on. I want to be very clear about something. My freshman year of college, 2008, I colored during finals. I started this trend. I colored a dinosaur. I named him Stu. I posted it on my best friend Austin's door, and I have star- I was a trendsetter. I, I don't it. think we can argue with that. <laughs> I did it. It was... <laughs> 11 years ago. <laughs> when I was in college, we would do a turkey coloring contest. It was this, the varsity swim team, and we would do a turkey coloring contest every year. But I think it's true. It's the most stressful time. You're about to go home for the holidays. It's peak training. You have all your midterms or whatever. Yeah. And it was like something to ground everybody. Mm-hmm. And it is, like you were saying, like you zero in on it. I do the same thing with crossword puzzles. I use crossword puzzles. I think Jasper does too. Yeah, right? As he like, loves the crossword. That's my like... It, but it brings me down. It like it makes me focus on something. And I like to listen to like music without lyrics when I do like classical music. It feels like a calming wave. It's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing how little time we spend doing just one thing in our lives and how good it can feel to just focus on doing one thing and not the 8,000 things that are on our to-do list. Yep. One of my favorite columnists is Nicholas Kristoff. And just two weeks ago, he had a column about loneliness. And he had mentioned, let's see, social isolation is more lethal than smoking 15 cigarettes a day 
or then obesity, according to a Brigham Young University study. Um, and then he, like, for context, said obesity impacts 600,000 people. Oh, my God, it kills 600,000 people in the U.S. every year. So the implication would be that loneliness is a larger killer than something like obesity. And I was blown away. And I was wondering about that. You know, what are the mental health benefits of social interaction and how do you encourage that? So... I think social interaction is huge for all of us. We, if we think from an evolutionary standpoint, we are not a species that is meant to exist in isolation. We have seen that survival wise, you think about even seeing monkeys at the zoo in the wild, hopefully in a nice zoo, if they are in a zoo and they are really social and outgoing and engaging with each other, engaging with whoever is there visiting, um, that is sort of our natural state of being. And I think we gain a lot from seeing ourselves reflected back to us and other people, having people that we can go to for comfort and support as much as we, as we grow up, sort of outgrow that infant stage of being completely dependent on someone else for care. It's never entirely true. Um, and we are very much better off together. And so I think probably part of what's contributing to that statistic is what are the other health health implications of things that someone might have experienced that is leading them to self-isolate? A lot of my work is with um, children and youth who've experienced trauma, and I think we are learning more and more about the long-term health impacts of trauma and that that is something that may lead someone to be socially isolated in the future if they have had incredibly negative, harmful, perhaps life-threatening experiences with other people. They're going to be much less comfortable engaging um, or entering into new relationships, and thus that might lead to experiences of loneliness, which then, as you're saying, have really significant health impacts. It sounds like, too, we... We learn about this a lot in mm-hmm. school, the ACEs, mm-hmm. um, so the adverse childhood experiences, mm-hmm. and that I think we don't necessarily, we think of it as like teachers or as like professionals who work with children as it's happening to them now, but I don't know that like it's become widespread enough where people can look at it from the perspective of how, what has adversely affected you, even though you're an adult now, like what has brought you here? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it, it's an empathetic, compassionate way to view one another. Can you would know better than I would. Just give us a working yeah. definition of trauma. Yes. So trauma, there are many different, different definitions out there because we think about sort of a discrete trauma and then a complex or an ongoing trauma. So a discrete trauma is defined in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is what therapists operate off of in terms of providing mental health diagnoses. What number are we on now? We are on the DSM-5. You are absolutely right. (laughs) Um, So a trauma is defined as any experience in which someone either experienced something life-threatening or something that they believed in the moment had the potential to be life-threatening or life-threatening to a loved one, a caretaker, someone who's very close to them in their life or witnessed something that was potentially life-threatening or they believed to be life-threatening to someone else where they were physically present. So the idea, as the DSM defines it, is that if it didn't directly happen to you or you didn't directly witness it, if you only learned about it, it needs to have been someone you're close to for it to have had that level of impact. Then we think about a complex trauma, which might be something that 
wasn't life-threatening in the moment, but was repeated harm. Um, so that's a lot of what we're thinking about when we're thinking about child abuse and neglect. Although you could also argue that for a child, that is potentially life-threatening. And from their perspective, they may believe that to be life-threatening at the time. Um, and then thinking about systemic issues, there, Dr. Ken Hardy does fantastic research into racial trauma and the trauma of racism. And so we're starting to see that some of these systemic factors Growing up in an impoverished community and an underserved community, experiencing racism, marginalization based on gender or sexual identity or um, a family's country of origin has a long-term mental health impact as well. So I think we're really moving as a field toward a place of broadening our definition of trauma. But the ACEs study really focused on discrete events that a child might have experienced. So something like losing a parent, having their parents separate, having a parent be incarcerated, a parent that might have been experiencing substance use and un unable to care for them, direct experiences of abuse, that we're now seeing that there are long-term health impacts of that, um, in part because it actually has an impact on the body and also because it affects mental health and brain development, which then is going to impact someone's behavior moving forward. So there's an interaction between actual physical health impacts and then impacts on mental health and the brain that lead to risk-taking behaviors that then lead to negative health impacts. Wow. <laughs> now, you've given us so many amazing, I don't know if you call them strategies, but what to do when you're faced with depression, maybe in the wake of trauma, but at what point do you start to encourage or support people taking antidepressants and what are some of the positive impacts and then also some risks that go along with that? So I think it's impossible to generalize. Um, so it's definitely a decision that someone should make individually in conjunction with their doctor, with their therapist, with whoever is providing care to them in the moment. Um, I think Medications, as we know, have side effects, which is true for any medication, whether it's a psychiatric medication meant to have mental health impacts, a physical health medication. So that's always something that a provider should talk through with you. And it's something that perhaps your doctor tells you about them. And then in therapy, you sort of explore, how do you feel about them? What would it be like to take medication? What does it mean to be someone who's taking medication for a mental health condition? And how do you understand that identity? Um, so I think taking into account side effects, I think um, medications are always something that we want to think about when someone is significantly at risk, um, where they are in a place where they're thinking about hurting themselves or someone else. I think sometimes, too, people are in a position where um, their mental health is in a place where it makes it difficult for them to access therapy, and that's another position where medication might be recommended as a short-term or long-term part of treatment so that they are really in a place to be able to sit in a room. When you think about sort of traditional therapy, yeah. going to see someone in the office or having them come to your home or meet with you in the community um, and really engaging in talk therapy, that takes a lot of different factors. Being able to be motivated to leave home and go meet with someone, being able to sort of like 
sit and talk and sort of be with yourself and another person. Um, so sometimes medication is something that can help a person get to a place to be able to access that and then do some additional work in therapy as part of their treatment. Or even to like pick up a phone and like call someone and make an appointment, right? Absolutely. That's a huge hurdle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was what, that's like what holds me up from everything is like as an adult person, that's what I find most, they're like not anymore as much, but be, that's because like I have experience therapy and I have like been medicated but those are all things that like at first like even when I had to like make my first doctor's appointment for myself as an adult I was like what (laughs) like interacting with people was so terrifying to me just like to do something that's very simple and it was just it was like an irrational like instance of anxiety that I would have and I get it sometimes still but like not nearly as often but it's the idea like of even just like I need to make a phone call and like tell someone who I am and why I'm calling and make an appointment. And it's interesting, right? Because you have a very successful podcast. (laughs) I see you command classrooms filled with (laughs) difficult children, you know, and the idea that making a phone call with a professional would be a barrier is interesting. And it makes you think about like, what are all the things that, you know, I struggle with that maybe somebody else doesn't struggle with or somebody would never suspect I struggle with. Right. Absolutely. And that's something like for me, and like, like you said, it's impossible to generalize. And for me, like even like the medication that I take, it's like, I don't have a super high dose, but like I have been helped tremendously by just having enough to be like, Oh, I have to make a doctor's appointment. Cool. I can do that. You know? And also with the benefit of therapy, but like it's something that like does no longer feels like terrifying and like debilitating to do. Mm-hmm. It's like we're like, okay, I can do that. Yeah. I'm almost 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think we are so used to people having chronic health conditions that they take medication for, and yet in some areas of society haven't moved as far along when we think about mental health, that there may also be conditions where someone would benefit from regular medication use. I was also thinking as you were talking about sort of like how we make a decision that something is or isn't easy or simple. Like what makes us think that making a phone call is simple and how do we make those decisions about what we assume is or isn't simple for the majority of the population that those are sort of things that when I think about my work, I think about sort of one-on-one what I'm talking about with people, but also like what are all the assumptions that we've made as a society that's contributing to how we're individually experiencing it. Because if we didn't think a phone call was simple, we might take a very different approach to supporting everyone and feeling comfortable making that first phone call. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny because my family, like, you know, different, it's mostly like depression, anxiety runs in my family. And it's so funny because it affects my mom too. And hers is different from mine. I think of it as like almost like different strains of like the flu, right? Because she also has those issues, but, like, she would be like, well, I don't understand why you can't just call, make that call. Because, her, like, she's affected in an entirely different way. And so for her, to, be, she's like, well, I don't get it. <laughs> and I'm like, but that's my thing. <laughs> so it really is, like, there's so many different ways that it looks or it, you know, occurs. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Yeah. Things are so individualized. It's part of what makes my work really interesting and exciting and makes me want to go back and do it every day is that no two days are the same. No two people's situations are the same. And I think it's also something that makes it really important if you're someone who's thinking about engaging in treatment to really explore your options and talk specifically with someone about you and your needs because 
not every therapist works in the same way is going to feel like a fit for you. Not every medication has the same effects on every person who tries it. Um, so really making sure that you're getting individualized treatment on the basis of what you need and not what you might have read on the internet has worked for other people. Right. <laughs> Certainly statistics are great guides. Research is great guides where we can say that we're seeing that this works for a lot of people, but still taking into consideration that you are an individual. I think individually, we all have our own very small means for coping with the mm. seasonal change or coping with a bad day um, or, you know, more serious forms of depression. And we talk on this podcast a lot about pop culture, but I was giving some thought to what my, I don't want to call them guilty pleasures because they're like things that, you know, provide a little bit of instant sunshine for me, yeah. even on the darkest day. Um, so I started to make a list and I'm curious what things you might use in the same way. But one thing I found recently and Molly, you actually were the one that recommended it was the great British bake off. Mm -hmm. It's a reality yeah. show, but they're so kind uh, to each other. When I first recommended that show to someone, like when I first started watching it, however many years ago, I recommended it to a friend of ours, um, that we worked with at school who is a counselor. And I said, it's like watching Prozac. <laughs> Because that's how it feels. It's very soothing. Yes. And there, well, you know, there are a couple of British personalities who yeah. are the presenters. Yes. They don't say hosts. The presenters. Yeah. And then even the judges are tough and honest, but kind. Mm -hmm. I just, I really enjoy that. Yeah. It, yeah. I think that one thing about it that makes it feel like that is the, the production of it. It's the way that it looks. It's very bright. Um, but it's also the way that it sounds. It has a rhythm. The music is soothing and their accents are soothing to us, right? And the act in England, they're probably like, whatever. <laughs> the <laughs> act of baking is meditative right. to watch. So it's a bunch of like therapeutic things at once, plus kindness. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the most therapeutic thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I also, I love Sarah Dessen novels. They're YA novels. When I became um, a middle school English teacher, I discovered them. It they all have the same plot. It's almost always like a summer romance. A girl gets a job at like either, oh God, one, the most recent one she came out with, she is um, a housekeeping maid at a hotel on a lake. And there's like the rich side of the lake and the poor side of the lake. Um, <laughs> there's one where she gets a catering job. They, you know, she always gets like a prototypical summer job, ice cream scooper. And she falls in love with somebody. They're together for a little bit. And then for some reason, they're torn apart. And then in the end, they get back together. And does, does I know anyone, what's going to happen. Yeah. Does anyone die in hers? Is it, Or is that just like more Nicholas Sparks' like No, thing? no. This, he loves are, to kill people. These are very YA. It, I, but they're like, they're so predictable. It's comforting for me. Exactly. Yeah. And there's that like cathartic feeling of like, Oh, getting to feel really sad when they break up, but knowing it's going to be okay. Be great, but like yeah. the comfort and the relief is coming. It's like a lifetime movie. Yay. The climactic <laughs> scene is that they kiss. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's just so innocent. Summer love. Mm -hmm. My favorite movie is Almost Famous. So I, I could always watch that. Just watched it this past weekend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's got like, you can sing along with it. There's youth and I was coming say, it's of about age. like growing up and like understanding and knowing yourself. I love right. writing, so movies about writers mm -hmm. I always really get into. And then the last thing on my list was a terrible Taylor Swift song that I love so much. It's from her Red album, um, and it's called Starlight. And it's like... Is that the one about Ethel Kennedy? I think it is. 
I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty she, like, sure. She like sneaks it's into Bethel. a party. Yeah, and pretends- Bobby's wife. Okay, yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. Well, I don't know the song, but I do know that it's about Ethel Kennedy, which is important to me. <laughs> that sums us up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, it perks me up every time I hear it. It came on when I was running this morning and I was or this afternoon, and I was like, oh my god! All of a sudden, my pace picks up. You know. I was thinking about this particular what like your list of things and like mine is I do watch the British Bake Off but when I feel like down and sad I like to like wallow in it like I put on things that are gonna like F me up like I want to get super <laughs> depressed I want to get more depressed I'll, I'll like think to myself if I'm like if I feel really sad I'll be like I want to cry like what's gonna make me cry I'll put on like four well Four Rings and a Funeral is a romantic comedy and it is my favorite movie but it's also like pretty sad and dark and there's a lot of gray in it. So I will, I like to like wallow in it. I like to be, I like to put on like songs that I think will make me cry and just be like, this is where I am. <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. Cause I, I think that people do do that though. Some people I've talked to, like, I love crying. I think it's like, I feel great when I cry or after I cry or, you know, and I think then some people are like, cheered up like my mom will always put on the office which like I do that too but sometimes yeah sometimes I just want to get deep in it and really feel it sometimes it makes sense I also have that playlist of songs that I know will make me cry landslide in the right moment (laughs) always hits the spot the Dixie takes landslide too though Either one, Either one, but more the Fleetwood Mac yeah, one. The Classic. Chicks. The harmonies on that that Dixie Chicks one like, really gets me. See? There yeah. you go. And there have been some studies that have shown that that feeling that you have to cry, you're actually crying out some of the hormones. It's catharsis. Um, it is cathartic. Wow. And so you're Super sort of releasing catharsis. some of that from your body. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's been shown that it's not every time you cry, but some of that feeling of like needing to have a good yeah. cry, you're actually crying some of it out. Wow. Um, so letting yourself feel it in the right moment can be a good way to go. Um, but I do definitely lean more in the distraction side of things. I'm rewatching all of Gilmore Girls right now. I don't even remember what prompted me to start it, but I'm deep in the first season. <laughs> no signs of stopping. <laughs> I feel like Gilmore Girls I associate with fall, though. Maybe that was part of it. It I might just be that, that one mm-hmm. opening shot of the foliage. Mm-hmm. That could be it. And you're like, this is so a fall true. show. Yeah. Yeah. When it gets colder, especially heading into the holiday season, I rewatch the holiday every oh. year. <laughs> Nancy best. Myers classic. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> um, and I love Maggie Rogers music. And I think that one can go both ways, too. There's, like, the cry to it songs, oh, yeah. and then there's the totally upbeat, like, this is going to pick up the pace on my run But songs. even her upbeat songs are, like, feelings. That begs the question, have you heard Watermelon Sugar by Harry Styles? Oh, yes. His new song. <laughs> oh, my God, lights. <laughs> Saw the SNL performance. Um, what did you think? He's perfect. <laughs> I love him so much. The real question is, have you seen that? photo of him leaving a club in New York last week in the weird like was it a sheep sweater yes it's beautiful (laughs) I think everything he wears is great and perfect and wonderful I really Um, liked the sketch where he's the dog dog. of A.D. Bryant Bryant. A.D. Bryant is so good like anyways she's imagining her her dog her dog has come to life as a human and And it is Harry Styles (laughs) yeah um, it's brilliant. I And I think he's just like, he's so game, you know? He's just like up for whatever. We talked about this a little bit um, 
when they that profile of him came out. But he's just like, let's let's go. Rock Some and roll. celebrities phone it in. He went. Yeah, Liam Neeson read yes. off Hard. of the cue cards. Mm-hmm. This was, like, years ago, but I remember, like, it's, like, seared in my brain because I remember we were like, what are you doing? It was, like, over 10 years ago, I think. The Grammy nominations just came out, Um, and Lizzo got seven nominations, and she, like, leads the pack. But Billie Eilish is nominated in all four of the main categories, so that's Best Album, Best Record, or, like, Album of the Year, Record of the Year. I talk in, like, Oscar language. Um, Record of the Year, Album of the Year, Best New Artist... And I can't remember the fourth one, but I thought that was like a huge deal. She's the youngest person to ever be nominated in all four categories. So I thought that was crazy. I am not the biggest fan of her, which feels a little blasphemous to say at this point. I have not been able to get into it. I, yeah. I only like, I only like bad guy, but I like it Mm -hmm. enough that it's keeping me in the game. I like her more now that I've learned more about what she's done in terms of mm-hmm. genre. Mm. I guess I couldn't place the genre of her music, and that is what has made her so prevalent. People yeah. explained that, or I think I read a Ringer article. Typical. But oh. um, I, they said that genre now is not the same as it once was because of streaming services. And so where we would go to the record store mm-hmm. or to Strawberries or oh my God, strawberries. Newberry, and we would go to our section where I was like, I'm really into pop punk right now. I'm really into folk music <laughs> right now. And you have to like find, like you have to look for the yeah. letters. You have to be like, looking for S. Now the songs are automatically predicted and shuffled and put into playlists and there's just not so much structure and Billie Eilish was one of the first people to really take several genres and cohesively combine them and that's why her music has been so successful. That is really interesting. That makes mm-hmm. sense. It does make a lot um, of sense. There are people who think she's an industry plant though. Her whole entire image is cultivated and everything about her is fake and I think I just like love like, I love um, entertainment industry conspiracy theories specifically. She's a And I think that's team. a really good one. Her and Cam- um, Camilla, Cabello, Camilla Cabello, people think, is also an industry plant. They conceived her and they were like, go to this show. And then now she's just like, I'm a pop star. A superstar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of superstars, I know you had thoughts about... Yes. Well, Sexiest Man Alive. Sexiest Man Alive. So every year around this time, People Magazine, I think it's like, I don't know, it's been a while. It's been like 20 or 25 years since they started. They crown the sexiest man alive. And it's usually like, it's a symbolic publicity thing, right? It's not like an actual thing. It's fun though. <laughs> um, and so I was thinking, so this year's sexiest man alive is John Legend. And I think it's really interesting because I really like John Legend. I'm like very fond of him as a person. I don't think that he's like super, I think he's very handsome. I don't think he's like super sexy. But I think that like from a standpoint of like, publicity where he and his family like he and Chrissy are like a big deal right now and I think politically they did like his he's very outspoken so I think it was like they were kind of making a statement with it he also got an EGOT this year oh yeah he EGOT it so yes he did he, did. he actually Grammy Oscar Tony mm-hmm. yes and I believe that Chrissy called it a P-GOT <laughs> because now he has people sexiest man alive uh. um yes so I thought it was an interesting choice what did you think, ladies? I had a really similar reaction where I thought it was an interesting choice where I appreciate that I the vibe I get, again, could be a totally curated image, but like he seems like a really great person. Mm-hmm. And I always am fascinated by that choice from the perspective of like 
there is a business aspect to it of like what is going to sell the most magazines. And I am always surprised because this is clearly why I don't publish People Magazine of like, I would not pick the right people to have mass appeal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I also think it's very interesting because I believe that last year, nope, sorry. So last year was Idris Elba. And prior to that, there were only two people I guess three who were, like, not strictly white guys who had won. Mm-hmm. So, like, Keanu Reeves won in 1994, um, and he, I believe his mother is Chinese, um, and he's, like, a native Hawaiian. So then it was Denzel Washington, 1996, and then The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, 2016. But up until that point, it was all white men. And then last year was Idris Elba, which almost, like, manifested itself because they kept announcing it every year, and the whole entire internet was like, do you see that guy over there? So then, yes, last year they were like, we got the memo. So I thought that was really interesting, too, where they kind of were like, yeah, we know that, like, black people exist. Yeah. Well, Johnny Depp won twice in Mm -hmm. the span of 10 years or something. And I'm like, out of the whole world, you're going to pick the same man twice? Right. Like that. Well, it's like, well, okay. So like George Clooney won twice. And I think it's really interesting because George Clooney won once in the ER era and then he won again in the Oscar era. So that kind of makes sense to Mm -hmm. me where you're like, there's two different George Clooney's, right? And let's um, validate that he's aging well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then Richard Gere won, got it twice. He, I don't know, he was a big deal for a while. I like Richard Gere. I'm fond of him. <laughs> and he was like, like in the first year he won was 93. Like he was like, that was huge, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was dating Cindy Crawford. It was like a whole thing. And then the other double winner, I think there's only one more and it's Brad Pitt. Fine. <laughs> but, um. So I was curious, because I, I sent them the list. I was like, hello. I have thoughts. <laughs> who's your favorite sexiest man alive? Do oh, you guys have a favorite? Fave? Like, who's your, who's your guy? I think my list cuts off. I have two here. All right, let's take a look. I don't have the recent ones on Oh, so immediately I'm jumping to JFK Jr. Well, he was the sexiest man alive. Oh. And that was eight years before he died. Sorry to Sorry. make it dark. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, he was probably like fresh out of law school. He was a public defender at the time. That's what he did for years in New York City. So I love him. Matthew McConaughey, I've talked about him before, is like, he's one of my guys. So he might be, he's up there. I also really love Pierce Brosnan was the sexiest man alive one time. And I am a big, big fan of his. I think that he's still one of the sexiest men alive. I've been watching a lot of, I think it's called Ballers lately. So it is called Ballers. The Rock is, you know, I was like, Brawlers? Ballers? Ballers? <laughs> yes. Um, but I love that they gave Richard Gere and Cindy Crawford sexiest yes. couple alive. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why they haven't continued to do that. I, I know, that's like know. a really fun idea. Yeah, I did not know that that ever happened. I feel like I have to shout out Patrick Swayze, like Dirty Dancing. Uh, um, what year was that? 91. And Keanu. Keanu rules. I feel like his reappearance in Always Be My Maybe, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about it. Here's some that I don't care for. (laughs) Johnny Depp. That guy sucks. Um, I don't know. I've heard Mark Harmon's a jerk. Mel Gibson. Terrible person. Oh, awful. But to be fair, it was 1985. Like, they didn't necessarily know that he was like a Nazi sympathizer and a racist like wife beater. Uh, those are the two big ones that stand out. Uh, I don't care for Blake Shelton. I mean, he's fine. Whatever. I don't have a strong opinion. Me either. And I've never. But that's almost worse. It's almost worse <laughs> that I don't have a strong opinion. He's with Gwen Stefani now. Yeah. 
that's what he broke up with Miranda Lambert, right? Mm-hmm. They that, but that wasn't like he dumped her. Like the okay. two of them had a tumultuous like. Just it's a, it seems like it ended like volatile on both ends. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was like, yeah, he's a jerk. I think that they both were like unhappy and never saw each other. And she's kind of like cool and fun. And was like, I need to go. Bye. Yeah. Well, I went and saw her concert because she was at the DCU Center on my birthday that year that they broke up. And she was angry. It was a great show. Yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> oh, I hate Sean Connery too. Okay. Just to be clear. <laughs> so mega stars. I have one would you rather today. It is about JLo. According to a recent article in The Cut... She loves the smoky, leathery scent of Le Labo's Santal 26 candle. And they cost $75 a piece. She currently orders 50 of them a month. So if you do some quick math, that's $4,000 a month. But she apparently has just cut back on her habit. There were years where she was ordering 200 of the candle a month. So that brings us to a $15,000 a month candle budget, Mm -hmm. which is insane to me. Now, I started to think about this, and I'm like, well, you know, what are you going to do? My difficulty was that I will never have $15,000 to spend on candles. So would you rather spend $15,000 of JLo's money on something for her every month, and you're in charge of spending it on anything you want for JLo, mm-hmm. or receive $15,000 worth of candles each month for you from JLo, but you can't resell them and you can't re-gift them? Can you tell people they're from JLo? Sure. Yes, that one. I love candles. I guess you're right. That would be like a social media gold mine. <laughs> well, I also just love I have I have this thing where I have said that like if I had like unlimited monies and like space that I would fill entire rooms with mugs and candles. Uh, well, I that's live my in a dream come true. Apartment that could be a disaster to accept all those. Exactly, I'm yeah, deeply I'm concerned around. about what fifteen thousand can- dollars worth of candles. They'd have to be really expensive candles. Like yeah. it couldn't like, be too many candles. Like more expensive than anthropology. Yeah, $75 per candle. That's still a lot of candles. Um, 200 a month was the max. really glad you brought this up because it reminds me of one of my favorite tweets of all time. There's this Twitter account. It's Drill, D-R-I-L, like at Drill, and he's it. I don't know. It's this, like, entity that is is from weird Twitter, which which used to be more of a thing, but kind of just, like, the tweets go viral every once in a while just because it's all just, like, hilarious nonsense. And this applies directly to this because I, and I love it. So this is the tweet. Food, $200. Data, $150. Rent, $800. Candles, $3,600. Utility, $150. Someone who is good at the economy, please help me budget this. My family is dying. (laughs) And like every time I read it, I think it's just the best, like most nonsensical thing. JLo is drill. She's far surpassed that. She I has. don't think I could take the candles. I think I'd have to shop for JLo. And I mm-hmm. am a huge candle fan. I have way too many in my house right now. I once, with my mom, tracked down a candle that was burning in a restaurant bathroom because I was so obsessed with how it smelled and like immediately ordered them online. Candles are fantastic, but I don't think I could have $15,000 a month worth of candles. That's a lot a month. I know. If it was like... A year? I'm going to spend her money. Maybe I can even give it to charity or something. Right. Like, could you, throughout doing that, befriend her, have some influence, maybe have her also gift you some, Mm -hmm. give it away to folks who need it? I feel like you either get something or you don't. Yeah. You get candles or you don't get anything. Well, if you can spend her money on her 
then maybe you can convince her to spend it on other people. But yeah, you can't keep Imagine it. like the monthly like unboxing JLo candles video though. <laughs> you know? Like you could be a sensation. Would they be all one cent? Because it sounds like it's she's mm-hmm. or no. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they're all one cent. <sighs> And on that note, I'm looking at the floor. <laughs> I just sighed and looked at the floor. Emily, Wait. thank you for helping us make better decisions in our lives. Yes. <laughs> I hope that that's true. Certainly, I would recommend that, again, anybody seek out individualized advice. These are yes. broad generalizations just based on things that I have seen work and that I would hope would maybe work for others. Yes, same here. I'm not a professional. I've just had it done to me. <laughs> <laughs> a disclaimer and by dead to me I mean like you know it's a joke (laughs) I have been Sarah I have been therapized I have been Molly (laughs) and this is Pop It Pop It thank you